Good morning. Our passage this morning is found in Exodus chapter 6, starting in verse 28. Hear the word of the Lord. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command to you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. I'm going to try to pull myself back together. We baptized Eden this year. Just like amazing to hear that story. let's, Let's start today. Let's pray. Let's pull ourselves together and hear what God has to say. When I say pull us together, I mean like pull me together, okay? So, God, we thank you today for your word. We thank you that it's powerful. We pray that it would speak to our hearts. We thank you and worship the greatness of you today. In all of our lives, we have testimonies of what you have done and how you pursue us. And so we thank you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's confession time. I'm a bit of a travel geek. Okay, so if you need, sorry, if we need a Bible, I saw that, uh, I don't want to, if you need a Bible, just put up your hand. We'd love to give you one today as a gift, or if you just want to follow along, we're going to be going through a lot of text. So just uh, let's go and get started. So I'm 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 a bit of a travel geek, and what do I say is I read travel advisor site websites, and I plan a trip, and I think I enjoy the planning of the trip. As much as I do enjoy going on the trip. And there's so many amazing places. I I know in my life I'll never be able to go to all the places that I desire to see. All the amazing spots that God's created. I want to show you today, just as I was looking through that, Psalm Psalm 19, 1-3 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. But this statement even is dependent on your belief in God. Like, for believers in, in God, you might say, well, I can see when I look at photos or places of the world, I see the fingerprints of God. But for a skeptic, you might be sitting here saying, well, that's just a unique combination of all the, that nature has to bring. But there's some uh, amazing spots, and I just wanted to bring up a few photos just to, to, to show us what the greatness of nature looks like in this world. There's a lake uh, just... A jungle in a shower. Yeah, keep going. We're not going to spend a mountain range. Can you imagine being there? A waterfall. 
Imagine that's in Switzerland, the little the city right nestled there under the mountains in the sky. You know, when you look at those photos, one of the questions is like when you see all these things, the greatness of God, the question that comes, and if you're a skeptic here today, is that what would it take for you to believe that this is the fingers of God making them? What would it take you to believe in God? If you're sitting here today, you might be convinced and you might, I might ask you, have you grown less enamored with the greatness of God? Has he become ho-hum in your life? You don't think of him anymore as exciting. And I ask you, what miracle would you need to fire up your heart today about him? To see how great he really is. And, I, and to say this, we've got to say, welcome to Exodus 7 through 11 today. Because this is a passage where God shows up and we're going to see his power in tremendous ways. And so would you look with me? Where We just heard read verses 1 to 5. I'm not going to read those again, but verses 1 to 5 of chapter 7 of Exodus, they reiterate the plans and the purposes of all mir- these miraculous signs. That the Egyptians would know that I am Yahweh. That's the, that's the message there. And then we read in verse 6 and 7, it says this, that Moses and Aaron did so, they did just as the Lord commanded them. And then we skip down to verse 8 and it says this, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then, you'll, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded them. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and the servants, and it becomes a serpent. Then Pharaoh summons his wise men and his sorcerers and the magicians of Egypt, and they did the same through their secret arts. For each man cast down their staff and it became a serpent, but Aaron's staff swallowed up the other staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. You know, in this section, it's like a mini miracle before the big stuff starts. It's like a precursor, and we get a preview of the miraculous. And so Moses does exactly as the Lord commands. There's a picture there of God's superior power taking over the, 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 the Egyptian gods, the counterfeit power. And Pharaoh's heart grows, grows harder. And this preview is, sets up a pattern. Okay, You want to you read this, and if you were to continue the next few, you'll see this pattern. I don't have time to show you over and over again in every situation. But, but listen to this. There's a pattern that shows up in all the remaining miraculous signs. And the pattern is this. First off, you're going to see, part A, you're going to see, one, the obedience of Moses and Aaron. That's the starting point. There's obedience of, those, of, those, of Moses and Aaron. Then you're going to see God's superior power over Egyptian gods. The rest of the, the way, you're going to see this power. Then you're going to see Satan tries to counter. And this happens in the first three miraculous signs, and then he gives up. Or he's unable to, to, to match the power of God. And finally, you'll see the perpetual hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And so there's, we're going to see nine, we don't, there's ten we're not going to talk about the 10th one today. We're going to, that'll be built out. But we're going to talk to not, about nine miraculous signs. We've got some way to go. 
Let's get, let's get to it. Okay? So follow me along as we read. Due to un, uh, Pharaoh's unrent, unrelenting heart, God chooses the opportunity here to confront Pharaoh's unbelief and his rebellion through a series of warnings. And those warnings have been broken out down by scholars in many different ways. But one of the most helpful ways, I think, for us to see it today is that there is a th- sort of three cycles of those nine of those nine miraculous signs. And so the first one, the first sign is this. The, the, the first cycle is this. One, Yahweh humiliates the gods of the Nile. Look with me at Exodus chapter 7, verse 14. Okay? It says this. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And take in your staff, in your hand, the staff that has been turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve, they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus saith the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and I will turn it into blood. The fish of the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink. Now this sign is really, really appropriate, because the Nile River itself is a primary god for the Egyptian people. They worship the Nile. They, They worship the Nile as creator and sustainer of life. You know, there's uh, three deities that are often at- attached to it. But we have a picture I want to show you of, of Osiris here. Osiris and uh, New and Happy are in this moment humiliated by God. The Nile River turned to blood. The, the sustainer of life is now a cesspool of death. The fish are dying and it stinks. And here's this sign has all the components of the emphasis that we the pattern that we just talked about. Verse twenty, Moses and, and Moses and Aaron obey Yahweh. First off, that's what they do. Then God displays His power over a primary god of the Egyptians, the Nile River itself. But then in verse twenty-two, you'll see this that the Egyptians show up and they the Egyptian magicians are called. And they're able to, the magicians of Egypt, verse 22, did the same by their secret arts. So heart, Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. Okay? So the magicians here uh, try to counter through their power. And it seems like they dabble in dark powers. It's not just a slate of hand that, that these secret powers are there. And they're able to do this, this act. But they are not able to overturn the blood in the, in the Nile. They're just able to copy it. And then in verse 22, 23, Pharaoh doesn't listen. First sign, first sign. The second plague is a plague. Let's read about this in chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. Sorry, we're not going to be four chapters. We're not going to read it all today. So chapter 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus saith the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let me go, behold, I will plague your country with frogs. Now frogs in themselves are not scary or creepy, depending on how much you hate them. Okay? But, so one frog is like, oh, it's a frog. I don't like frogs, or you may be okay with it. But ima- here's the picture. Imagine the numbers that are so great 
that they become disgusting or annoying. Okay? And it's almost a, a humorous picture, okay? That the frogs are everywhere. Frogs in the bread baskets, in the beds. Imagine t- taking your pillow up. There's a frog underneath it. You open your pot of soup or whatever. Frogs in your soup. There's frogs everywhere. And frogs are sacred to the Egyptians. Can you imagine having your house full of something that you cannot kill? You're not allowed to kill. The frogs were a sacred deity. They were symbols of fertility. And all of a sudden, my house is full of stuff like these animals, and I can't touch them. The story themes continue. Obedience by Aaron, the direct attack on the revered god of the Egyptians, the satanic power here that allows the magicians to counter, but they cannot remove the frogs. And then there's the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And at the end of the sign, the Pharaoh comes to Moses and says, pray for these frogs to go away. And the frogs die. And a pile of them stink. And they build up and they, stent, they make a stench in the entire land. So here's what I want you to, to think about. You've got to put yourself in the shoes of the Egyptians here this morning. Read this story. Think about what it, what it would be for the Egyptians. Would these signs have been enough yet to convince you that this Hebrew God was real? Or would you just kind of pass it off as, well, that's, this is just, man, this is a coincidence. This is a really bad turn of events in nature. But would you be convinced that this God is real yet? Sign number three. Turn to verse 16 and 17 of chapter 8. It says this, And the Lord says to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out the hand, his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on the man and the beast. So scholars are a bit divided on what exactly the gnats are. Some believe they're, they're lice. Some believe that they're vast swarms of mosquitoes. All agree that they're terribly annoying. Okay, So that's the idea here. I hated mosquitoes as a kid. I grew up in a swampy place called Alma, Ontario. It's not very nice, but here's the deal. It gets, I get mosquitoes in the spring, and they're awful. And I, if I had one mosquito in my room at night, and it was buzzing around my head, I would have to turn on the lights, and I'd wait for it to land, and I would find it, and I would kill it. Because I could not stand one mosquito to be around me at night. Now imagine this, that the swarms are uncontrollable. The swarms are just taking over your life and they're driving people crazy. And they're attacking people and they're attacking livestock and they're driving them mad. And this idea of striking the soil, turning the dust into bugs, God is challenging their trust in the gods of the soil as they worship through the Nile floodplains. And this is the moment, this is the moment when the magicians are unable to replicate the power of God. At this point in time, they use the words, and I want you to see this. This is the finger of God. Because they know, I can't, I can't do this. I, might have all, I have a certain amount of power, but this is the finger of God. And I ask you, this, have you ever had a situation in your life where you're convinced, this is God's hand? This is God's finger in my life. What do you do with that kind of realization? The magicians are com- beginning to be convinced that this isn't just uh, 
a bad state of affairs. But Pharaoh's heart, what? Grows hard. So, the, so far, the plagues are, are just really annoying. They're, they're uh, touching everyone, though, around them. And so whether you're Israelite or Egyptian, you're finding all these signs really annoying. Now, Yahweh begins to increase the intensity. And he begins to show his power not to, to one specific group of people, just to make it clear who, who the, what the judgment is all about. So the second cycle is this. You're going to find that God, the second cycle, God differentiates between Egyptian and Jew. So the fourth sign, if you're going to, we're going to look at that together, Exodus 8, verse 20. says, The Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh and as he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they must serve me, or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. So some believe this is more biting insects, uh, only these are bigger ones that take chunks out of you, and they take chunks out of your legs. Think horsefly and Muskoka as you're sitting there at the lake, and it's biting your, your leg, and you can't quite catch them, Okay. And then, you think of that as one, think of ten thousands or tens of thousands of these flies surrounding you, biting you and your animals. And it moves from annoying to downright painful. Right? You just the, it begins to hurt. And so this is the difference, though, in this sign, verse 22. I want you to read it with me here. Verse 22. It says, but on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there so that they may know, so that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. So God begins to differentiate who receives the pain. The area where all the Israelites live, there's no, fl- no flies. The land of Egypt, primary, they, there is. And he does this so that there's no mistake about, uh, in a belief about the random chance of these circumstances happening. This is no natural phenomenon happening here. It couldn't be exclaimed away. And it was a direct warning to the, the, Egyptian, to the nation of Egypt by Yahweh. Would this swarm be enough to make you believe? The fifth plague, the, the plague of dead animals. Exodus 9, uh, chapter four, 1 to 4. Exodus 9, 1 to 4. Then the Lord says to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus saith the Lord, the God of the, the Hebrews, Let my people go, so that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock in the field, the, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. And those flocks don't just die, but they die in piles. And you imagine the stench in the land. The frogs are bad. And all of a sudden, there's animals everywhere dying. And they're just lying in the fields. Egyptians had all kinds of sacred cows. You wonder where we get the term sacred cow? It's from the Egyptians. 
They had all kinds of sacred cows. Many gods are depicted as livestock. Many bulls are worshipped as a sign of fertility and life. In Memphis, I want to show you a picture here. There is a, a temple where a live bull is worshipped as the incarnation of the god Apis. The goddesses of love and motherhood and beauty, Hathor, were worshipped in temples. And all these gods, as they're sitting there dead, are humiliated by Yahweh. There's, they're left in a pile of stinking animals. And verse 4 rings out here. It says that, the, that nothing the Israelites own died. You imagine that? Nothing that they own died. Only the Egyptian livestock were the ones that died. The sixth plague, Exodus 9, verses 8. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take the handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them up in the air in the sight of, the, of Pharaoh. And it shall become fine dust over the land of Egypt and become boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout the land of Egypt. Horrible boils break out. This seems to be a direct attack on the priests. Because the, the scholar Philip Reichen, he was talking about this. He says it was customary for the priests of Egypt to take the ashes from the furnace and then to throw them up in the air as a sign of blessing. And in this situation, the Egyptians looked to their false gods. They looked to their false gods of healing, gods like Amon-Re and Thoth and Imhotep. And in all these moments, I want you to see this here, that all the magicians who have been dabbling in their dark powers experience the full force of this judgment. Because they have boils that are so significant that they cannot even stand for the pain. They cannot stand before Moses at all. The magicians in particular. But the Lord hardens the heart of Pharaoh and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoke to Moses. Think about pain here. Would pain be enough to make you believe in this God? Would it be enough to make you uh, turn from your, all the gods that you knew in your life and trust in or believe in this one. You'll notice that the miraculous signs are increasing in power and they're moving from annoying to intensely painful. And so we're going to move on and we're going to move on to the third cycle, which are God's signs and wonders that move from painful to downright devastating. And God warns Pharaoh and all of his officials here that he says, I could, could have removed you right at the instant here. I could have taken you out, but I have a plan. I have a plan to show up my power. And he, and he says, now a storm is coming. Chapter 9, verse 18 and 19. Look with me there. It says, Behold, the time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from this day. It was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in your field into a safe shelter for every man and beast who is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Have you ever been in a terrible storm? Maybe you saw that, that thunderstorm of, you had a, a terrifically powerful thunderstorm. You, you are sitting there safe, but you saw the power of that storm. Or maybe you even were able to see a tornado go by 
And this storm is uh, classified as one of the worst storms in the history of Egyptian of the Egyptians. And we notice here in verse 20 that some of the officials of Egypt are beginning to take seriously this threat. Some fear the word of the Lord, and they actually move their slaves and their remaining livestock inside. We don't really know if they become God-fears. We don't know if they are the Jews and the God-fears of the temple. But that we do know this, that we have a sense that some of them are beginning to believe. And they're beginning to be saved from the... And then they actually experience being saved from the wrath of God through their belief. And this shows something to me, that the mercy of God is beginning to extend past the Israelites and to those who are simply willing to believe God. But Pharaoh, he displays here a false repentance. He says, I've sinned. I need your forgiveness. He calls for the end of the hail. And then he turns his heart back. And he will not let the people go in the face of utter financial and agricultural ruin. Enough. How about signs like this? With, with the signs of losing your possessions, would that be enough to make you turn from your gods of your life? Would that be enough to believe? The eighth sign. Look with me at chapter 10, verses 10 to 12. If this is a movie, the music is getting more ominous. Okay. And he said to them, The Lord be with you. If I ever uh, let you or your little ones go, let look, you have for this some evil purpose in mind. Okay. Sorry, then we say, For the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, I've hardened his heart and the heart of the servants, that I may show these signs of mine to them. And in this moment, there is a plague of locusts unleashed on, on the land in every tree, every leaf. They're all destroyed. And I thought about this week. I tried to put myself in that place. Can you imagine me standing there and you see a storm cloud on the, uh, on the, surf, on the, on the distance, a black cloud that's uh, there. I go, man, this is, we just had hail. Is there another storm coming? And then all of a sudden you hear the little beating of wings and the noise grows louder and louder and then you realize to your horror that it's not a cloud that's bringing rain but it is a descending of locusts that's going to eat every single green plant you, you have in your possession. And what this meant is that they're going to eat your livelihood. They're going to guarantee you famine in the upcoming year. And their hope and their wealth and all their food sources is gone. And at this point in time, Pharaoh's officials are begging him to let the people go. But Pharaoh still wants control. So he says, I'm going to release, why don't we release the men? You guys can go worship in the, in the wilderness, but we're going to hold, the, hold to the women so that at least you'll come back. I know you'll come back. And so the plagues here take away their security. They know famine is coming and there's nothing now that can be done about it. Would loss of security be enough to turn you from your gods to this one? And the last, last plague, the ninth one, darkness, verse 21, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. 
So utter darkness. Three days of darkness come upon the land of Egypt. For sun worshipers, this is, nothing says end of the world, okay? As darkness, three days of darkness uh, does. And it would have been terrifying because every morning the rising sun in the east affirmed the life-giving power of Amnon-Re. He was the sun god. And the sunset in their art was depicted as death. And the sunrise was always depicted as the hope of the resurrection. And here this person, the person that is central to the meaning of this plague is the Pharaoh. Because the Pharaoh was believed to be the son of Re, the reincarnation of Amnon Re. So the sun god, the reincarnated god sitting there, Pharaoh, is unable to turn away the darkness. Their savior is put down. And it must have seemed like the end of the world. And I can imagine the fear that just would break out in your heart. Would fear be enough to turn you from your gods? Would this be enough to make you believe? And there's one more threatened plague that we're going to hear about. But we're going to save that one for another week. So here's the way we do Nine miracles, nine plagues. What's the point? What can we learn about this as a group of 21st century people here in Guelph? And I want you to see this, that there is one overarching message that builds on another. And it's first this, that the plagues communicate a message to us that says this, I am God, there is no other. That is what these plagues tell us. The plagues demonstrate the futility of worshiping false gods in our lives. That God is concerned for his own glory, his own greatness. And he will not share it with anyone else. And understanding this purpose should cause us to look inside of our hearts. Because we need to ask ourselves, is there any false gods that we are pursuing to find our security, our self-worth, our comfort, our pleasure to drive away fear from our hearts. I tell you, nothing has changed in the human heart since the time of the Egyptians. You and I are no better than the Egyptian people. Our hearts are still prone to, to idols. You know, there's a, um, a quote by A.W. Tozer, a theologian. He says this, An idol of the mind is, is offensive to God as an idol of the hand. And in these signs and wonders, we come face to face with the absolute greatness of God who loves us so much that he doesn't let us keep him second place in our hearts. And so if this message is there, there is, I am Yahweh, there is no other. If that's the overarching message, they speak, the rest of the plagues, the plagues speak unmistakably to his power. The plagues reveal the fearful power of God. 
You can read the accounts here and you can't escape how incredibly powerful God really is. In the plagues, his power is shown over the bloody waters of the Nile. In the plagues, his power extends over the storms of great and awesome strength. In the plagues, his power extends over nature, over animals, over bugs, over crops. In the plagues, God's power is shown over sickness and it will eventually be shown over death. And so when we read this, we are meant to stand back and to say, this is truly a God of power. Who would do anything but avoid His presence? Why wouldn't you stay away from Him? Is the only appropriate emotion, is, would it only be fear in the presence of this God? And I'd say at first glance, yes. If someone stopped reading the Bible in Exodus, and maybe that's you here today. Maybe you, had, you started in Genesis, you got to Exodus, you hit Leviticus, and you're like, whoa, what's going on? I'm stopping here. Okay, you're out. But if you read these accounts, you can, I understand why you come away with a picture of an angry God that you just want to, who is a, is a supreme being over all the other gods, these smaller Egyptian deities. I could fear him, but I can't love him. But if we stop at this picture of power, we miss the other part of his character that's found in these chapters. The plagues reveal the incredible mercy of God. You know, God doesn't just wipe them out when they say no the first time. The mercy of God is showing here in how many opportunities he gives to people to repent and to listen. The mercy of God is found in this, that God has mercy on the Jews, but he extends it to the Egyptians if they were willing to listen. Remember the plague of hail? If they put their their servants and their animals away, They experienced, in some sense, salvation. And what we see here is the mercy of God foreshadowed in his plan to save all the peoples of the earth. And I love this. I want to to show you something. Acts 2, chapter 2. Okay, can you flip over there with me? Acts chapter 2. It's the beginning of the, it's really the birth of the church. Okay. But the believers are experiencing the, the, the spirit of God being poured out upon them. Okay, And the, the Spirit is poured out on all these believers there. And in this day of Pentecost. And suddenly there is a, in, in verse 2, there's a, there is a sound of mighty rushing wind. And now you flip down to verse 5. Now there was dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished and said, Are these not who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each in our own language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phygria and Pamphylia, Egypt. Egypt is one of the nations that is included in the, the people who hear the mighty works of the, of the Lord, the gospel, for the very first time. I asked you at the beginning today, 
What would it take for you to convince you of God? You might be impressed even if you read that, those passages with the power or you might fear him. But what is the best way for us to see a merciful and powerful God? And I want to, I want to say today, the best place for us to, see, to look is Jesus. It is in the gospel that the power of God and the mercy of God is brought into clarity. The plagues point us forward to the clearest picture of this God of power and mercy, Jesus Christ. For we see power in Jesus. In the gospel, the water is not turned to blood, but it's turned to life-giving wine. In the gospels, the storms are commanded by a single word from his lips, and they're made still. In the gospel, Jesus prays, and the bread and the fish, if you know this story, the fish that comes out of the ocean and the bread that grows out of the land are multiplied and they feed 5,000 people. In the gospel, Jesus speaks and he touches people and they're healed. When, they, when he sees someone who has leprosy, he touches their skin and they're made clean. The demons hear Jesus' voice and they're jumping off cliff, cliffs. And people, a small girl, dies. Jesus comes, touches them. And the power of God raises him from the dead, her from the dead. And all the power, all the power of Exodus is found in the life of Jesus. But it is the mercy of God that is so unique in the willing sacrifice on the cross. The idea that God himself would love people so much that he would die for their sins. He would restore us to relationship. He would have compassion on us. He would have deep and passionate love And we see God in perfection in Jesus. He's full of mercy and yet powerful enough to to take away every sin that you've ever done, every sin that you're doing right now, and every sin that you're currently going to do in the future. That's how powerful Jesus is. And his mercy is enough to pay all the cost. In Exodus, we come face to face with God who calls people to put aside their and trust in his greatness, to put aside idols, to worship him above all else, to heed warnings about rebellion. But you and I aren't meant to stay there today. We are invited to experience the God of Exodus revealed fully in Jesus to experience his greatness and all of his power, to wonder at his mercy. You want to be uh, inspired to sing? Be inspired by his power and his mercy here this morning. Because his mercy can and does extend to all who will believe in him. What is it that God is telling you this morning? What decision do you need to make that you've been putting off, not willing to trust him. And I ask you even, if you're here today and you don't know him, what will it take to get your attention? And my prayer is that you look to the cross today and we hear his voice. He loves you. Let's pray. God, we pray today and ask that your word would just speak in power. We thank you for your greatness and your mercy. And would it stimulate and cause us to worship you now. We love you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.